Well, hello. Good to have you with us on Red Barn Radio. I'm Brad Becker. We continue to celebrate the 20th season of Red Barn Radio, and heavens to Betsy, John Boy, it's show number 769. <laughs> Dr. Matthew Stallard is our guest this evening on Red Barn Radio. Though now living in Ohio, Matthew grew up near Ashland, Kentucky. Not only did he absorb music and lore from his grandfather Hobart, who lived to be 101 years old, he also soaked up old-time Appalachian music from local Kentucky traditional musicians who were regular customers at his father's workplace, the Broadway Barbershop. One such player was the late fiddler J.P. Fraley of Denton, Kentucky. Fraley died just over 10 years ago. Stallard boasts a faithful command of Fraley's fiddling techniques and Eastern Kentucky fiddling repertoire, which he is here to perform with his son, Grant Stallard. Welcome, Matthew and Grant Stallard, to Red Barn Radio. All in the alley, one dark and drizzly night. Bit lines and stacked, he had one terrible fight all about that John B. Stetson had. Stackley walked to the barroom and he called for a glass of beer. Turned around the bed line, said, what you doing here? Waiting for a train to bring a woman home. Stackley, oh Stackley, please don't take my life. I got three little children and a weeping loving wife. Your bad man, your bad man, Stackley. God bless your children and I'll take care of your wife. You stole my John B, now I'm bound to take your life All about that John B Stetson had Sackley turned to Billy Lines and shot him right through the head Only taking one shot to kill Billy Lines dead All about that John B Stetson had Stetson had All in alley I thought I heard a bulldog bark It must have been old Stackley Stumbling in the dark He's a bad man He's a man right back in jail High police call up Stackley He was lying fast asleep High police called on Stackley And he jumped up 40 feet He's a bad man Stackley Well I caught old Stackley and they threw him right back in jail Couldn't get a man around the gold stack of Lee's bell All about that John B. Stetson had Stackley said to the jailer, jailer, I can't sleep All around my bedside, the lines began to creep All about that John B. Stetson had
Thanks to WEKU, Red Barn Radio's official radio partner, NPR for Central and Eastern Kentucky. Listen online at WEKU.org. Red Barn Radio is presented with the financial support of LexArts, Lexington, Kentucky's premier cultural development, advocacy, and fundraising organization. LexArts, working for the development of a strong and vibrant arts community as a means of enhancing the quality of life in Central Kentucky. And by Visit Lex, Lexington, Kentucky's Convention and Visitors Bureau. Planning to visit Lexington or just looking for more information? Visit Lex is on the web at visitlex.com. Matthew Stallard is here with his son Grant to share a set of traditional tunes passed along to them by Matthew's grandfather Hobart Stallard, Grant's great-grandfather Hobart. I'm sure you'll agree Matthew is a fine fiddler and banjo player. He's also a Ph.D. and was an associate professor of English at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio for 18 years before retiring from academia. And it should come as no surprise that Matthew is also a fine student of traditional music, his greatest fondness is for tunes and techniques out of eastern Kentucky. He has recorded an album of tunes called Hobe. The collection was just released on Apple Shop's June Apple Records in February of 2022. Matthew considers the album Hobe an extension of his grandfather's front porch. Welcome back to Red Barn Stage, Matthew and Grant Stallard. Whoa, mule, whoa, whoa, mule, I say, well, ain't got time to kiss you now, my mules run away. Face looks like a coffee pot, a nose looks like a spout, the mouth looks like the old fireplace with the ashes all took out. Well, ain't got time to kiss you now, my mules run away. 
Well, we're glad you're with us on Red Barn Radio this evening. Our guest is Matthew Stallard. Only really about a month ago, the wonderful label June Apple out of Whitesburg, Kentucky, released a collection of traditional tunes based on, well, not based on the life of Hobe, but tunes that he played and enjoyed and interpreted, right, as a banjo player. Hobe is Matthew's grandfather and his son's great-grandfather. He died in 1996, and he was 101 years old. Matthew, you not only chose the tunes to be included on the album, but you also played them with several others. Yeah, Lars Swanson was a bassist, too. It was a wonderful experience. Um, I, um, I retired from academia, and, and yeah. it's all set to <laughs> enjoy <laughs> playing music and so forth, uh-huh. and then, of course, the pandemic happened. So what ended up happening was I ended up practicing a lot in my basement. I did play, but you know you just you just played at home and uh-huh. on uh, on Instagram and um, um, there were a couple folks that I knew you know reached out to me and said, hey you know you you ought to you know document some of this and and um, so I had some friends who knew Chance and then Chance reached out to me and then mm-hmm. we went to his uh, studio in Greenville, West Virginia and uh, he was the perfect producer for me you know I mean, he understands old-time music what I was wanting to achieve and mm. and uh, when you got into this project you also learned that there were some other recordings out there uh, he, he's been recorded um, Mark Wilson uh, did did the most extensive recording of my grandfather back in 1972 uh, where he, he sat on his front porch for a couple of him to sing into a microphone or now at the time he was at Ohio State hmm. um, but um, he and um, you know, many other folklorists were, were making the rounds at that time through southeastern sure. Ohio and uh, eastern Kentucky and southwestern Virginia. And, uh, you know, we're, and I'm glad they did. I mean, you know, these, these were living artifacts, uh, these old folks from the late 19th century. And, you know, every time an old person...
Actually, funny story, we, um, we didn't know that Mark had made these recordings, and they're very high-quality recordings. He had great equipment, you know, for doing it. And we have family reel-to-reel recordings, but they're not as good, you know, as what he was able to make. But, but we didn't know that they existed until in the mid-'90s he reached out to my father, and he wanted permission to release some of them for Rounder Records on an anthology that he was working on. And, and so he called my dad, and uh, he said, you know, I'd like your permission. And Dad said, well, why are you asking me? He says, well, you know, I thought it'd be a courtesy. He says, no, no. He says, you can ask him. And he, Mark was shocked that he was still alive. You know, he was 99 at the time, I think, when they, when they released it. And so that he was able to renew the, the friendship again with, uh, with Hove that they had struck up together. Was your dad a player, too? Yeah, my dad is a banjo player. Did he play in the style that his dad taught him? Yes. So he, he, oh. he was taught the banjo from, from, my, uh, from my grandfather, and dad taught me tunes, too. And my, my life overlapped with, um, with uh, Grandpa Hobes by uh, 26 years, so I had a lot of time to absorb music from him. But my father played the banjo, my mom played the guitar. All of my aunts and uncles played musical instruments, and um, uh, Hobe made sure all of his children learned how to play, and their family time centered around music. My dad's oldest brother, his name was Lexi Stallard. My grandfather couldn't afford a fiddle, but he knew that he wanted to get a fiddle for Lexi. So uh, he found an old man that had a, had a fiddle he'd give up, and he was going to trade him a shoat pig. He left one evening with the shoat pig in a bag and then came home with the fiddle in the same bag that he traded to. They called it the pig fiddle from that point on. After I'd released Hope, Jack Wright, who was the founder of uh, June Apple, he called me out of the blue 
and uh, said, you know, you like the album? And I said, well, thank you. I appreciate it. One of the reasons he was calling was that Jack told me that the first time that he ever heard old-time fiddle music was in the living room of my Uncle Lexi. So he put it together because they both grew up in Wise County, Virginia. And, so, and that's what sent him on his path of pursuing old-time music as, as his career. Jack did. Jack learned how to play Clawhammer banjo after that, and then he discovered Nimrod Workman and Sycon and all these guys, you know, that he recorded on the June Apple label. But I thought that was pretty serendipitous that it came out full yeah. circle. Uh, that's a great story. <laughs> that uh, you know, didn't, didn't know I had that. So I told him, I said, everybody at June Apple's Hobe's grandkid. <laughs> <laughs> Ashland Barber College. It was ran, ran by uh, the Snyders. His first barbershop he actually set up in Winchester, Kentucky, just down the road here from Lexington. He was there a couple years, but then he moved his barbershop to Ashland. And I loved spending time on my dad's barbershop. And he uh, tried to teach me good habits to be an entrepreneur, working with my hands. So, so we had an old shine chair there that had been there for Dad had bought the barbershop in the 50s off of some German immigrants, and, you know, it was, it was old then. So this antique barber chair or this shoeshine chair and set me up shining shoes. And so I would heckle people and harass them. I started when I was eight. I'd work that shoeshine chair, and there were a lot of old-timers that came in there, and many of them were musicians. And, uh, you know, I'd started messing around with the banjo and guitar when I was seven or eight years old. But J.P. Fraley was one of Dad's customers, and so... One day I was shining his shoes, and, you know, you got to get a rhythm with a 
going with rag. <laughs> and he said, hey, you know, that, that's a pretty good beat you got going there. You know, you ought to, you ought to play the guitar. You know, you can show Anadine a thing or two. <laughs> so laughed about it. But, you know, I, that, that made an impression on a young mind. And I thought, you know, he thinks I could probably play the guitar. So I hassled my dad, and we went next door to the pawn shop, Charlie's Pawn Shop, got an old Yamaha, beat up Yamaha, learned how to play that. And I studied every tune on Wild Rose of the Mountain, waiting for JP to come back. And he finally did, and then I showed him on the guitar what I could do. And, and then after that, we had a, we had a, great, a great friendship. Uh, our families were very close. Anadine and my mom were good friends. So we got to spend a lot of time together. I spent a lot of time in their house eating cornbread and beans and playing with music with JP on the front porch. And then as a teenager, I played with him regularly at square dances that we had in Greenup County. That's the best way to learn to play the fiddle is to play the guitar with a fiddler, especially for square dances, because you play a tune like a million times in a row. You know, it's pretty effortless for the fiddle player too, but the guitar player's gotta be a young man like Grant here, you know, you wear him out. <laughs> Get those runs working. Yes, that's, yeah, that's, right. That's right. So I got to do that, and then I then I'd go home and work him out on the fiddle. And then you know, the next time we'd get together, I'd talk to him about what I was playing. And, and he was always very reaffirming. He he would never say you did something wrong. You know, you, you play something for him, and he'd say, well, you know that that's interesting. But you know, you, you thought about doing it this way, <laughs> and I knew what that really meant. <laughs> but that was the way that he would you know phrase things. And, and um, yeah, he, he was a good friend.
bottle in my hand, bottle in my hand, bottle in my hand. Dance all night with the bottle in my hand. This four day get the fiddle in the Grant, before we get into the story of your great-grandpa, if you could tell us a little bit about you and how you happened to sort of uh, get into this. That truly is a long and winding tale. <laughs> uh, when I was about 14, I uh, started to play the guitar just for my own amusement. And as soon as I could play about a G chord, a C chord, and a D chord, this guy with a fiddle <laughs> crept up behind me. That's really all the chords you need yeah, to it. know to play most and fiddle And I tunes. was kind of followed around the house by this fiddle player. <laughs> and uh, now we're here. That's about it. And have you ever gotten into other sort of styles of music on the guitar? Or is this what you do on the guitar? Yeah, no, I play uh, electric guitar. On electric, do you do sort of rock or jazz or just sort of whatever... Whatever you feel like. It's, it's avant-garde. It's all over the place. <laughs> what do you do when you're not playing music? Sleep. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I, uh, I'll ask your dad that question. He'll he'll give me a he'll give me a true answer. more Red Barn Radio after this break. Red Barn Radio, roots music, southern style. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is Red Barn Radio, recorded live from the Arts Place Performance Hall in Lexington, Kentucky. Red Barn Radio, roots music, southern style. might you describe what JP brought to fiddling largely and also Kentucky fiddling? He's known for his very smooth bowing. He used to quote his father Richard as saying that, son, you, you got a bow that's, the, you know, it's this long and you need to use every bit of it, you know, so use as much of the bow as you can. I think one of the things that characterizes his style are the long sweeping kind of notes and notes that linger a little longer than you expect them to linger. Is, is one of his trademarks. And when he would shuffle with the fiddle, too, he kind of a, a playful way of shuffling, you know. And uh, there's a technique in the Eastern Kentucky fiddling, they call it marker notes. Many fiddle um, techniques in, in, in lots of regions uh, developed out of the need uh, to play without an accompanist. And you know, they would find different ways of doing that. So you'd emphasize the rhythm, you know, if you were playing for a dance and you were the only musician. But one of the ways that they did it in um, Eastern Kentucky is they would use these marker notes where you, you play the melody, so you'd still have a nice emphasis on the melody. You wouldn't sacrifice the melody. And that is, was certainly true with JP. Uh, but you'd hit a marker note, which is a note that kind of like marks where the chords should go. You know, so you'd see him rock the bow back and hit those lower notes, and that, that's uh, what you do in, instead of having an accompanist, you know, but you could still mark where a chord presence would, 
would, would be. But, but he's a smooth, smooth fiddler. Of course, beautiful waltzes uh, that he played. It was signature waltzes. He had lots of expression. Um, he didn't have the technique that a, lot of, a classical violinist would have where they got a wrist vibrato going. He'd be using a hand vibrato. I can't hold the fiddle the way he did because he'd have his elbow in, which uh, really enhanced his ability to, to, to use that hand vibrato. But, but yeah, you, you'd never forget when, when, when you heard him. And he's mm. very distinctive. For years, J.P. had the gathering yeah. that went on there at Carter Cave. What, what was that called? It was the Fraley Family Festival originally. Yeah. I used to attend it even before I started playing with him. It was an annual event in our family. It was a Greenbow Lake Lodge in Greenup County for many years, and then it moved over to uh, the Carter, uh, Carter Caves Resort uh, there, or State Park. Not far um, off of 64. No, really, not, yeah. not at all. Right. Not at all. I played at that each year, too. Rather than being on stage, though, I mean, what I enjoyed the most was playing in the parking lot. Hmm. You know, that, that was where the best music was. You know, you just, just walk around the parking lot, and you'd find someone there, you know, playing over in this corner, someone playing over in this little nook in the lodge, you know, and there's just great jam sessions that we had there and played till two or three, two or three o'clock in the morning. And it was a special time. And I, I think when I was younger, I went to, and I still go to uh, some of the, you know, the bigger festivals that have a contest emphasis. But one of the things I liked about the, the Fraley Festival was that it, that was not present. You know, you, you, were, it was, you were under no pressure, you know, you didn't have to show your street cred with any licks you were playing or anything like that. You were just there to enjoy the tune and, you know, to listen to what others were doing. And when the music would come together, when you had three or four fiddlers, you know, playing the same thing, you know, everyone's playing Fisher's Hornpipe, you know, uh -huh. I mean, that's just a magical moment. You can't get that and you can't predict how that's going to go with all those different versions of the same tune, you know, coming together, coalescing. And, uh, um, yeah, that, that was just real, real magic uh, at that Fraley Festival in those parking lot jam sessions. Yeah.
great-grandfather Joseph died when my grandfather Hobe was just three years old. It was a tragic accident. He was uh, kicked in the head by a horse that he was shoeing, which was always an occupational uh. hazard back then when you're working around animals, but uh, it killed him instantly. My great-grandmother had a very large family, and so a lot of, a lot of relatives chipped in to, to help in various ways. But my grandfather's uncle, Rich Baker, in particular, was, a, was an influence. He was an interesting man. He was a CSA veteran, and he was a banjo player, and he was a fife player. So he taught my grandfather how to, how to play banjo. The style of banjo that, that he taught him is, um, people would call it a type of claw hammer today, but it's not what has become the standard claw hammer style in old time circles now. What, what most people call claw hammer now incorporates a, a lick that's called a bum ditty lick. Yes, right. That comes from northern festival style playing. That lick was used in the, the southern Appalachians. I mean, it was played by some but it was a regional kind of style, and mainly the right hand was kind of individualistic. But the, but the style in particular that my grandfather played involved um, the index finger and emphasis on that and occasionally hitting the, the fifth string as a drone, if you're familiar with banjo. And I, I've since learned that that's an African-American style playing, mm -hmm. so that was something that his uncle Rich had acquired. But, but Rich knew a lot of tunes, and in fact, um, I didn't put this in the notes, but this is an interesting connection. So my grandfather's uncle Rich Baker uh, that same Richard Baker was the great-grandfather of Kenny Baker. Oh. So uh, there's lots of different Stallard Baker connections. None of them are incestuous, but there's a lot, uh -huh. <laughs> there was a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of varied back and forth. And so I have a lot, a lot of Baker cousins, and well, they have a lot of Yeah, you men, you've been mentioning so, one other. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, so, yeah, so there's, there's quite, quite a few uh, back and forth there. And Rich Baker uh, you know, taught him a lot of the repertoire of these older ballads in particular, uh, that have since been recorded on rounder records. There's a big project now um, going on with the Field Recorders Collective, multi-volume uh, project. If, if, if folks aren't familiar with that and they want to go straight to the source from 19th century ballad singers, this, this is where to go. Fieldrecorderscollective.org. You can just find uh, just a treasure trove of wonderful notes that have been uh, accumulated from these field recordings that were accumulated in the 60s and 70s by people like Mark Wilson who recorded my grandfather. In, in that collective you'll find lots of bakers, lots of stallards from southwestern Virginia and eastern Kentucky.
Hobart's mom, Jenny, remarried, mm-hmm. but uh, things didn't go so well. At least, at, at least in terms of the, he didn't. Hobart didn't have the the kind of ideal relationship with his stepdad that he might have had with his his real dad. Yeah, he couldn't stand him, so he, he moved out. He said one of us was going to die, so he had he had to leave. Was that an exaggeration? No, a teen no, no. Exaggeration? There, was, there was violence, you know. Huh. So he needed to get out of there. And so he did, and um, then he, you know, he's 14 years old, and he starts uh, doing things on his own. And so he took a, a variety of different jobs. He worked in coal mines for a while. Uh-huh. He worked at other uh, jobs. Learned how to build chimneys, oh, which wow. was an interesting skill. Dangerous occupation, actually. But uh, he got good enough at that that he actually could build entire houses out of stone. And my, my dad was actually raised in one of those stone houses, uh, just outside of Pound, Virginia, uh, that, that he had built with his own hands, with a cord the stone himself and huh. put it together. Also had an episode in his life during uh, a prohibition where he was running moonshine, he and his brother David. Uh, Hobart's brother yes. David, yes. Yeah. yeah. When they got arrested, my great-uncle David took the whole rap because they didn't see any sense in both of them going to prison. So David had to go to the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary for 18 months for their moonshining activities, and my grandfather stayed at home and took care of his family and, and in his own family uh, uh. at that time. Also, during the Depression, uh, he and his brothers moved to Arkansas for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were there in um, cotton-picking fields there in, in Arkansas, and, and uh, they sent their money back home during that period of time. He also had a, a few years when he played banjo in a medicine show. And I don't know much about this. I wish that I knew more oh, about on. it. But this, but this was something that, that Mark Wilson actually uncovered in his interviews with my, with my grandfather. But I never did hear anything more about that. But yeah, in his youth, he was playing banjo and traveling shows you know, in, in Virginia and North Carolina. And I'm, I'm sure that he picked up a lot of his tunes and songs from those traveling experiences, too, and playing with other musicians who yeah. were part of the show. This wasn't like a pharmacy. This was like snake oil kind yeah, of stuff. Sure. You know, you'd come into town, and you're selling bottles of stuff that's mostly grain liquor, I'm sure, and uh, you know, passing it off as medicine. But I don't know that he did anything unscrupulous there, but he played the banjo. <laughs>
thing of music and back then, the way that people would play is a little different than it is now. So, like, you go to some of the big uh, fiddling conventions like Galax and, mm. or uh, uh, Clifftop or Mount Airy. Uh, you know, people know that they can sit around in a circle and someone is kind of... A, there's always kind of a pecking order, you know, so that this, the senior fiddler usually gets to determine, you know, what tune you're going to play next. And then everyone, even if you don't know it, you know, you just kind of hover your bow over the strings until you can kind of figure <laughs> it out. But it's a great environment for learning tunes. But that, that's how people learn and, and jam now. Back then, uh, in the 20s and 30s, that's not how they did things. They would sit in a circle and usually someone would share a tune. And so my grandfather would talk about how, you know, they would, they would sit around and, and then someone would just like play the tune and then everyone else would just kind of listen to it. And then there'd be like a conversation about, it. you know, you know that, was a, that was a pretty good tune. Now, what chord were you playing there? And, you know, uh. what, what, how did that let go again? And, and they would have a conversation about it. But it wasn't like this, this like it's almost like an orchestra, <laughs> a cliff top, whenever it comes uh. together, you know, and they play those tunes and it's great. And, that, and that's the way it was when I was a kid growing up, too. But the way he described it, it was more like sharing a tune. And then, you know, so the individuals would do that. And those old-timers had prodigious memories. I mean, they did not have tape recorders. You know, mm. they, they, didn't, they didn't have phones that they'd sit there and push a button, you know, and videotape it or, 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 or record it that way. They had to be able to remember it. And because even uh, phonographs were a rarity, when you heard live music, you were hearing something really extraordinary. You, you had to have a mind that could savor that. And so, you know, there are stories about um, musicians listening to music and they would just cry. People would listen to that and they would just cry because they couldn't go home and just put in their earphones and listen to music. If you're going to hear music, it was a live experience, you know. And so to hear someone who was really, really good was just a touching, touching thing. And in those coal camps uh, that my grandfather had, they were violent places. I mentioned in my liner notes an incident he described where a man bit off the nose of another man. And he slept with a gun underneath his pillow, too, for many, many years, you know, uh. in fear for his life. And music was a respite from that. You know, to, to be able to listen to a beautiful melody at the end of the day, after you'd gone through experiences like that and the, the harsh working conditions that they had in the sun there in those, those, uh, those uh, cotton fields there in Arkansas, uh, it was a big deal. The fiddler had a revered position because of this. Now, I'm not, I'm not calling for that to return. But, uh, <laughs> I don't think of that crowd as being a waltz crowd. No, definitely not. Uh, no, no, no. The, the waltzes came in with the German immigrants. You know, they, they brought uh, those in and, and uh, you know, into West Virginia and parts of Kentucky. And uh -huh. so, yeah, they, they added that to the, uh, to the, to the lexicon of, uh, of fiddle tunes over time. He learned chimney building. And uh, at what point did he learn instrument making? I think that was very early on. As a, as a young, young person, he made his first banjo. And so our, our speculation on that is he must may have learned the craft actually from his Uncle Richard. In the teens, before the mail order catalogs, if you had an instrument and you were playing it, you made it. That was the only way you could afford it. You couldn't afford to just buy an instrument. And so, you know, they, they learned how to make these instruments. And, and um, according to my father, he probably made maybe five or six banjos over his lifetime. He never made them for sale or for anyone else. He just made them for himself and, and family members. Hmm. What kind of hide was used? Groundhog, usually. Really? Hide, yeah. And did that hold up? Well, there, there are <laughs> there's at least one story of where it didn't hold up so well. He had a banjo. Uh, it, was my it was my dad's banjo, actually. And the hide ripped. And they, they found it all ripped up one morning, and my, my dad was all tore up about it. 
<laughs> and so uh, he went and got his gun, and he went and he, he killed another groundhog, and he cured the hide, and he put it on there, and it split again. He says, this isn't happening again. I'm not, I'm not going to go through this. So he took some old roofing tin that he had, and he put it on the head of the banjo, and it resonated just fine and sounded great, and he played that banjo for years with the, uh, with the corrugated tin on the <laughs> front of the banjo. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Didn't split anymore. Thanks to WEKU, Red Barn Radio's official radio partner, NPR for Central and Eastern Kentucky. Listen online at WEKU.org. Red Barn Radio is presented with the financial support of LexArts, Lexington, Kentucky's premier cultural development, advocacy, and fundraising organization. LexArts, working for the development of a strong and vibrant arts community as a means of enhancing the quality of life in Central Kentucky and by Visit Lex, Lexington, Kentucky's Convention and Visitors Bureau. Planning to visit Lexington or just looking for more information? Visit Lex is on the web at visitlex.com. Red Barn Radio's executive producer is Ed Commons, who also directs our show. 
The Red Barn Radio playout theme, Wookie Foot, was taken from a live performance of the Wooks here on Red Barn Radio. More at wookoutamerica.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Kathy Stamps. There are so many people to thank for our program this evening. First, Matthew and Grant Stallard, our guests this evening. We are ever grateful, of course, for our volunteers and staff who make our production happen so beautifully each week. That's John and Matt and Kate and Forrest and Melinda and Eric and, of course, our producer, Ed Commons, upstairs there. And we want to thank all of you folks for listening to our webcast, watching us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch, and those listening to us on the network of Red Barn stations and media worldwide. Red Barn Radio comes to you from our home, the Arts Place Performance Hall, here in downtown Lexington, Kentucky. Our website has updates and further information on our guests and our program. We're on the web at redbarnradio.com. And now once again, folks, please welcome back Matthew and Grant Stallard to the Red Barn stage. Barn Radio, Roots Music, Southern Style, the best music from the roots of the South, and sharing this music with the world.